Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 124 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another thrilling interview episode where we infiltrate the heavily guarded compounds of the world's most secretive spirits and cocktail experts and narrowly escape with knowledge that will make you a better bartender. This time around, I sit down with my friend and certified sommelier, Joey Fox, of Old Westminster Winery. Our topic of discussion is natural wine, a term you've probably heard, but one that most people, including myself, don't know a whole lot about. I want to say a few things about this interview before we get started here. Number one, you'll hear me say this a couple times throughout this conversation, but I think Natural wine is the biggest trend in the wine world right now, but it's one that most people aren't familiar with at all. And I think that's important because anytime you come across a massive sweeping trend that's flying somewhat under the radar, it can really pay off to give it your full attention. That's the first reason I'm really excited to bring you this discussion. Number two, this is another two-part interview, and I know we just had that with the Acid Trip podcasts that immediately preceded this one. No, we're not trying to squeeze more content out of this than we should. It just so happens that this was a long, interesting tasting and conversation that really deserved a two-part episode. And finally, I made a very deliberate effort to go into this conversation without having done much research at all, which is the opposite of what I normally do. Usually I try to ask really specific pointed questions, really steer the conversation. But in this instance, I wanted you to be a fly on the wall as I tasted several natural wines for the first time. I had a strong suspicion going into this that we'd encounter some really interesting flavors and dig into some really cool ideas. And fortunately for you, I wasn't wrong. But before we begin our journey into the world of grapes, vines, yeast, and bubbles. Let's take this opportunity for you to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the classic coffee cocktail. To make this drink, you'll need, first of all, no coffee. Aha, you thought you saw where this was going, but you didn't. The coffee is a red herring, but you do need one ounce of cognac. I like a VS or a VSOP. Two ounces of tawny port, which is a sweet barrel-aged and oxidized expression. A half ounce of simple syrup and one whole egg. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice. Shake vigorously for 20 to 30 seconds. Really give that egg a chance to get beaten up inside the shaker. Then double strain into a rocks glass over ice and garnish with freshly grated nutmeg. This cocktail makes its first written appearance in Jerry Thomas's famous Bartender's Manual, published in 1887, and he was also aware of the irony in its name, but speculated that its color was like that of coffee when you pour it into the glass, and thus the moniker. But if the name still irks you, well, just go ahead and call it a brandy port flip, because that's what it is. You've got the brandy and port in kind of an upside down Manhattan ratio where there's twice as much fortified wine as there is spirits. And then you throw in that simple syrup for sweetness and the whole egg for lots of creamy rich texture. That's about as classic a flip recipe as you'll ever encounter. So feel free to riff on it during your next gathering. With the holidays coming up, this might be something you try out on your friends and family. So, now that you've got yourself a delicious cocktail where wine happens to be in the driver's seat, let's turn our attention back to this fascinating natural wine interview with Joey Fox of Old Westminster Winery. Some of the topics we discuss in part one of this interview include what the term natural wine really means and what you can expect from wines that fall into this category. How Joey worked his way into the natural wine world by way of tea and then coffee and then restaurants, and then organic vegetable farming. How native yeast fermentation, 
lack of chemical additives and preservatives, and lack of fining and filtration can wildly impact the flavor profile of a wine. What the terms skin contact, orange wine, and pet nap mean, and why you're going to start hearing these terms a lot more often. How natural winemaking practices can take a grape that's usually used to make cougar juice, aka Pinot Grigio, and turn it into something extremely refined and food-friendly. Which sparkling wine predates champagne by over 200 years and much, much more. During this chat, Joey tastes me through two really cool natural wines. One is called Franc Fizz, which is a lightly sparkling red wine, and the other is called Seeds and Skins, which is a really beautiful orange wine. We talk history, we give tasting notes, and we really dive deep in this conversation. So buckle up, keep your corkscrews at the ready, and prepare to be dazzled by the wide and wonderful world of natural wine. Enjoy. Joey, thanks for being on the podcast. Eric, thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, so today we are at actually a beautiful location, beautiful tasting room (laughs) filled with beautiful bottles of wine. We are in Westminster, Maryland, and uh, we're talking with Joey Fox about natural wine. So can you just kick us off by introducing yourself and letting all of our listeners know who you are and how you came to be working here? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Joey Fox. Um, I am the sommelier and Maryland sales manager here at Old Westminster Winery. My path started uh, before I was able to drink wine. Um, when I was around 15 years old, um, I remember I remember getting really into tea and kind of finding the differences between uh, green tea, black tea, oolong, like. And then when I when I learned that they're all made from the same plant, that was really a, an eye-opening experience. Looking back now, I can say, oh, this is, I was into terroir before I knew what terroir was. Um, But um, as I grew older, uh, that turned into a coffee addiction. Um, Eventually, I got into beer. I remember my friend's dad telling me, uh, like, you're going to be really into wine one day. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. You know, here we are. So I worked uh, at, uh, my first job was at the wine market, a really great restaurant that was located in downtown Baltimore. Um, I started as a busser when I was 20. Eventually, uh, you know, I looked at all the wine bottles and I was just so curious, like what, what is, why, what is Bordeaux and Burgundy and what are the differences? Why is that $10 and why is that $50 and, um, why do I care? Um, I would, um, stay after the shift and just kind of look at all the bottles and read them, um, until I was old enough to finally drink them when I turned 21. And I really, uh, I just remember trying, uh, there's two wines that really stick out to me that uh, made a really big impression for me. Um, we had Domain Weinbach, um, they're in Alsace, and they make a Gewürztraminer. And this was, uh, if you've had Gewürztraminer before, such an aromatic uh, expression of a, of a grape. It's really kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I also had a, a Beaujolais um, from Domain Tivon. Um, and this was like just raspberry juice. And I, I remember, um, even when I was still a busser, I remember seating tables and kind of like selling wine. Then it was, uh, I got yelled at from a couple of servers. They're like, what are you doing? Like, that's my job. And I'm like, mm, just selling them the good stuff. There you go. You know, it's kind of cool too, because as a busser, you're literally picking up the wine bottle after it's, after the meal's done. And so you're, you're sitting there kind of with the dregs, but then also with this, this one really, kind of iconic piece of hardware, right? Like this yeah. is like a wine bottle is, is really, it's a really special thing in a way that, that some liquor bottles are not, um, or, or I, I guess maybe differently, right? Because the, the year is so much more important on a yeah. wine bottle and the maker's name. And like, there's, there's these subtle details. I think that, that spirits labels and spirits bottles are dogs, but wine labels are cats if hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. It's like way more situationally dependent. Like the year is important. Like these little details are really important. Absolutely. You know? So, um, so how did you come to become a sommelier and, uh, specifically how did you get hooked up with old Westminster winery? Yeah. So after working, um, working my way through the wine market, um, I eventually became a beer manager in the wine shop. And so my girlfriend at the time, um, now fiance, uh, she, Congrats. thank you. 
she was doing um, organic vegetable farming, and I went to a potluck one day, um, and I remember being really floored by the knowledge and breadth um, that the hosts had. They talked about all the all the seeds and how they did, and that was, it was really fascinating to me. That kind of struck a chord with my whole nerdiness about how everything does. Um, and I reached out to them and asked if I could volunteer for them um, a day a week in exchange for vegetables. Um, that eventually turned into a paying gig. Uh, the third weekend, they're like, we're, we're going to pay you. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, so between my wine background and then two years of one day a week of organic vegetable farming, uh, this was kind of a natural crossroads. Um, and one day at a tasting in Baltimore at the B&O Railroad Museum, um, mm-hmm. I met... Drew, the one of the three owners here, and tried through, I guess uh, I should mention that I've had their wine at the wine market and really fell in love specifically with their Albarino. The mm-hmm. 2013 Albarino like, was a r- kind of ground-shaking wine for me because mm-hmm. uh, Albarino is only grown in one part of the world, um, famously in the northwest of Spain, Varias Baixas. It's, a, it's one of those Basque wines, right? Um, actually, the, the west, the far northwest. Gotcha. Yeah. And I tried theirs and it, yeah, it was incredible. I met Drew, tried the new vintage of Albarino, and uh, we had been talking about it. Um, I was brutally honest. I said, hey, I love your 13 Albarino. I don't think I love this one as much. And he was like, you know what? You're right. Um, That one was, the 13 was all grown by us. Um, This one, we did a mix of two vineyards. We're not as pleased with the other fruit. And that you're right, it's not as good. I reached out to him later saying, hey, I would love to work a harvest. If you have any work, uh, please let me know. I came out here a month or two later and had an interview with Lisa, who is his, um, young, the middle sister, uh, the winemaker here, and started uh, my first harvest four years ago now. So this is year number four, and is, has, it, has it just wrapped up here? Yeah, 2019 has uh, just wrapped up uh, the harvest. We're pressing the last of the red grapes now that will find their home in a barrel and age for a couple of years before finding their way into a bottle. Yeah, and we were speaking off camera uh, that you're actually really excited about this vintage. Can you you tell us why? Yeah, this vintage was uh, legendary. Coming off 2018, which was a very wet year, a very rough year for everyone in the mid-Atlantic, up to New York, down to Virginia. 2019 was the polar opposite swing. So grapes, unlike a lot of vegetables, like um, dry and sunny and rain is the enemy for grapes. Mm -hmm. We had a lack of rain this year, which means we'll have um, really great yields and um, there was very little disease pressure. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, because with that moisture comes things like mold and and stuff like that. Rot, mold. So I want to kind of get into what natural wine is here. Um, You know, we're going to take a break in in just a minute, do a quick little reset, and then pour pour some wine. But uh, I want to give a little preface to people about what this episode's about, why I wanted to come here and speak with you about it and, and how we're going to go through this. And in my opinion, natural wine is the biggest trend in the wine world right now. And yet it is probably one of the least known. And, um, that is baffling to me, right? Because, uh, I got my, I, I got my WSET two certification in 2013 or 2014. And the intermediate is not like, it's not a baby course. It's, it's not the advanced course, but it, it's, you know, you still go through a lot of wine knowledge. We, we had to uh, have in-depth uh, regional knowledge about these different wine regions. And so it completely surprised me that natural wine was not anywhere in those course materials. And, um, you know, this is in hindsight that I'm, that I'm kind of confused because it's all over now. Restaurants are completely gutting their beverage programs and restructuring them around natural wine. This is a thing that's happening. It's happening all over the place in DC and I'm hearing about it. And so I'm hoping that before we take a quick break here, could you just give us the biggest of like high level overviews of what natural wine is? Yeah, so I'm going to start with a, uh, a low-level overview. This is um, what Alice Firing defines as natural wine. Uh, it is wine without any crap in it. Uh, really 
kind of easy to understand. Uh, any layman can say, oh, yeah, I get that. But natural wine is um, wine that is made with minimal intervention, both in the fields and in the cellar. Um, it is wine with all native yeast fermentations. So in our winery that you see here, um, there's yeast everywhere. And when we harvest the grapes, these yeasts are on the, um, the grapes. When you take them into the cellar and you crush them, those native yeasts, that's part of the terroir here, and that is where the fermentations will start from. Um, typically, natural wines will also be low to no sulfur, which is a preservative, and they will be made, um, unfined and unfiltered. So um, you can see here, this is pretty cloudy. Uh, this is a sparkling wine, and um, there's no filters in any of our wines. Gotcha. So that does sometimes le lead to a little bit of sediment in the bottle? Yes. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Uh, so unfiltered, no chemicals, mm -hmm. and natural fermentation. Are those kind of like the three signposts of a natural wine? Yeah, I would say so. Um, with conventional wine, there are up to 72 additives that you can use in wine. Stuff like ferrocyanide, uh, a lot of unfun things that you can find in there that are uh, above regulation. So we just gave you that high-level overview. We'll be back in just a minute to have our first taste of a natural wine and get a little bit deeper into these three things, like this lack of additives, this natural fermentation, and this, uh, what's the last one I'm forgetting? Unfined, unfiltered, unfined, native un yeast. It's unfined, unfiltered, native yeast. Um, so we'll be right back with Joey Fox. All right, so we are back with Joey Fox, and uh, tell us a little bit about this bottle that you're about to crack open. So this is Frankfizz. Um, Frankfizz is a really exciting new project that we just did. Um, this is 90% Cabernet Franc from the 2017 vintage that has aged all in stainless steel. Um, in 2019, this year, we got one ton of a really fun grape called Marquette. Um, we took this Marquette, the one ton, crushed it up, added the fresh juice into this Cabernet Franc, immediately bottled it, and had the secondary fermentation happen in bottle under this crown cap. Um, that's, that's that. So that's really interesting to me. Uh, to step way back for folks, obviously when we're talking about wine, we're talking about a fermented beverage. It's not fermented and then distilled like a spirit would be. It's just fermented, which gives us anywhere from like usually 13 to 17% in a wine. Is that? Um, I would say between, you can see stuff as low as eight um, okay. in like really natural winemakers in cool climates in France. Um, but on average, I'd say between 11 and 14. 11 and 14. Even up to 16 in California. Right. So we've got a wine here. So you, you made a wine the prior year and then two, two prior two years. prior right you said <laughs> 2017 yeah. so you've had so you had wine and that was just sitting in barrels correct um stainless steel it oh, never yeah. it never actually um went in the barrels okay so it fermented in stainless steel you take it you bottle it and then you also dope in some of this fresh juice from the other the new grape what was it marquette marquette yep it's a french american hybrid grape variety which we'll get in a hybrid soon yes yeah that's <laughs> another fun part of this um so what happens there just and you can correct me if i'm wrong i'm just trying to like walk my way through this with what i know about yeah. wine but when you add that new juice all of a sudden new sugar becomes available, right? Mm -hmm. And so the yeast that's coming in with that sugar, in addition to anything that might be currently in the existing wine, all of a sudden wake up. And yep. they're like, whoa, okay, there's more to eat. We thought it was done, but it's like, you know, kind of like the second course. Precisely. And so that is the, the secondary fermentation you're referring to that's occurring in this bottle. Yep. And so I'm guessing the only way we know what ABV this is, is if you crack open a bottle and, and then literally measure it, right? Yeah, or if you, um, you can do the math. You can okay. take the um, ABV of the initial wine, take in the potential, um, the total sugar volume. Um, I'm not smart enough to get to that total, but um, our winemaker would be. <laughs> be yeah, it is doable. Um, so yeah, let's crack it open, yeah. give it a taste, and um, maybe while we're doing that, uh, you could talk a little bit about the appeal of natural wine and in light of some of these, like, you know, the, we were talking earlier about these additives. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious 
about what the appeal is at the consumer level, like from from like an individual person, right? But yeah. then also at the program level, at the like the beverage program level um, at our favorite bars and restaurants, because uh, we we've been um, kind of comparing notes on some of the the natural wine programs in in DC that, that we're both familiar with. Yeah, um, I think um, it's really important. People people are shopping at Whole Foods and heading over to a shop right next door and buying Apothic Red. Um, I don't mean to throw them under the bus, but they're a really prime example of an incredibly popular line that's far from natural. Mm -hmm. um, people care about these grass-fed meat and organically grown vegetables, but then they turn the corner and buy highly synthetic, highly processed uh, wines. Um, and there's kind of a, a, a divide between that. Um, it's kind of like, it feels like a, something that's been going on in the background without us knowing it. Yeah. Right? Um, there's so little information out there um, when we talk about natural wine. Um, a lot of natural winemakers don't talk about, um, they don't flaunt that they are natural wine. Um, and there's a whole bunch of ambiguity beyond that. Um, you don't have to say, the only thing you have to put on your bottle is contained sulfites. And even if you don't add sulfites, there's natural sulfites in wine. So uh, that's something you'll see on every bottle. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lack of transparency in the wine world. Yeah, let's talk about sulfites because I think, you know, uh, you, you listed, you, you know, you, you said that there's like a, a bazillion different, you know, legal additives yeah. that can be put in wine. But that, that one, sulfites, that's, that's one that, that I've seen, right? You, re you read a wine label and you see contained sulfites and you're like, meh. Okay, yeah. they're allowed to sell it, so it must not be that bad for me, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess the only time that I've really heard anything about sulfites is like, oh, wine without sulfites won't give you as bad of a hangover. And I kind of use it as like a, that, that's my access point, but like, I don't know why. I don't even know what sulfites <laughs> are, except they start with sulf, and so does sulfur. Yeah. Like, that's what I know. So tell me, tell me more. Yeah, so sulfites um, are a preservative. Um, if you eat dried fruit or ketchup, um, they're in a lot of different things. Um, to kind of zoom out real quick, um, wine, I like to think of wine as a journey of um, grapes go turning into vinegar. That's the timeline, the start and the end of it. Wine is this really narrow slither that we have where these grapes taste delicious. Um, adding sulfur broadens that window by a little bit. You have a um, more leeway. Um, you just have a little more to work with. Um, and all these other additives are, their goal is to make that window even bigger. Right, and if you think about that from a business standpoint, like, great. Yeah. Awesome, right? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you, you know, especially when, um, you know, when, when you start trying to do things like lower the prices on your products to make them more uh, accessible to a, a wider range of consumers, um, then that type of decision is very much on the table because, you know, the, the lower you drop your prices, you know, the lower the cost of your inputs have to be, which means that as a business person, as a person who's making that decision, you don't really want to be losing sleep of like, oh, oh no, like, is, is this the right time to be stopping this fermentation, you know, or, you know, like, um, you know, by broadening that window, you're eliminating risk, which gives you more confidence to be able to, to lower those prices. So I do understand it from a business standpoint, Absolutely. but talk about like the, talk about what sulfites do that we might not like. In high additives, it just kind of, it, it strips the wine. It, it takes away its freshness. It, because it is a preservative, um, it'll give you a long lived wine. Um, so something you don't want to drink for 10 years before it starts to show. Um, but I think the whole natural wine movement is moving to younger, fresher tasting wines that are juicier. Um, and with that comes the, the farming practices. In order to make these wines um, more accessible, you were, we're picking the, the fruit earlier in the vineyard because we're, not, we're farming with a lighter hand than conventional. Um, so as a byproduct, these wines are getting lighter because think about it like a, a tomato, a green tomato. How often do you see a rotten or infected green tomato versus a really ripe red tomato? When those sugars are really rolling, the critters find their way. Um, so I like to 
uh, use that analogy. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it, it does. And it does make sense. Um, that's really interesting. I, I like the, I like that as a general rule, right? Natural wines will tend to be lighter. Um, and it, you know, I'm, I'm also kind of stuck on what you were saying a moment ago, you know, with, with sulfites and how sulfites extend the length of a wine. They, they give you something that's, that's, you know, you can age for longer. And I mean, when I was learning my wine, you know, who, who do you read? You read Robert Parker. Yep. You, and <laughs> you know, what, do, what does Robert Parker say? These wines are beginning to show magnificently and will continue to show magnificently for another five years. And of course, what we're referring to is some left bank uh, Bordeaux that mm-hmm. is already 20 years old. Yeah. Right. And so that just kind of struck me as a good thing. Yeah. And, and people, you know, I think people in the wine world say like, oh, that's a nice, you know, you, you look for those old label statements and you look for old labels from traditionally uh, good vintages. Right. And, yeah. and that seems to be like, well, if you get a good label and you get a good vintage, chances are it's going to be a really good bottle if it was properly stored. But what natural wine is saying is like, well, maybe don't wait so long and you don't need the sulfites. Yeah. And even the best made examples that have no sulfur they they can age as well um it's a misconception that natural wine can't age but as a whole the movement is younger fresher wines yeah and so we've got this uh the the fizz what's the franc fizz franc fizz so we've got our franc fizz right here yeah and when you opened it you had to kind of like let the let it let the air out very gradually because Mm -hmm. it was intensely fizzy yeah Um, can you talk about why that is yeah so when we we, we calculate to the best that we can the total sugars in the Marquette and how fizzy this end product will be from that secondary fermentation, but it's uh, not a direct science. So um, we opened it very carefully because all that, that 10% of Marquette created all these fine bubbles. Um, the byproduct of fermentation is CO2. The CO2, we can see it here, um, when it gets created, it naturally rises and it looks to escape the bottle but with a crown cap on it, it has nowhere to go. Right. So it reintegrates, and um, this got a pretty healthy um, secondary fermentation, leading to a nice fizzy mouthfeel. Right, and that's the same way they, they make champagne, right? They add, it, well, instead of adding extra juice, they just add sugar. Exactly. Right, and that's what creates, so that's, that's why it's carbonated, and uh, so that's not a, with natural wine, um, that's not necessarily a sign of anything wrong or different about it. It's just kind of like, you know, that's how different. some of them are made. Exactly. Um, so what, what kind of notes do you usually give on this? I mean, when I first, when I first nosed it, I got some, I, I got like some really nice, like raspberry kind mm-hmm. of like fresh, uh, fresh red berry notes. Absolutely. And really now, fresh cherries. Yeah, absolutely. Like, a, and now I'm, I'm almost getting, and I think this speaks to the, the brightness and the lightness that you were referring to. Uh, earlier, I'm getting even some like apricotty and stone fruity notes to this. Yeah, absolutely. Especially as it has opened up. But yeah, there's that like raspberry through line. This reminds me of like a Clover Club because hmm. that's a sour cocktail. Yeah, right? it's got the um, it's got the acid, but it's also got that classic raspberry syrup. So if you've ever seen a picture of that pink cocktail in the coupe glass, traditionally garnished with a cocktail pick that has three raspberries on it with that nice egg white head, okay. yeah. that is your Clover Club. And so this reminds me because of the brightness of it yeah. and also that raspberry note. It's like, oh, this is sending me to Clover Club land. <laughs> and um, even the carbonation on it kind of gives you the, the egg white creaminess. Right. Mm. Wow. This is really remarkable. And it just, it strikes me that there's more things you can do with this than simply just pair it with a steak, right? Like, yeah. what do you do with red wine? Well, you pair it with red meat. <laughs> so what would you do with this? Like, what is the use application of this red wine? When do you want to drink it? And what do you want to have with it? Yeah, this is so versatile. Um, that brightness you refer to, this can pair well with um, a salad with goat cheese. This oh. can pair well with pizza, red sauce with the, the bubbly red aspect. It's almost like a Lambrusco. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love goat, goat cheese. Mm. Oh man, like, <laughs> like a nice, this would be a, a really great charcuterie board wine. You were right on that. Yeah, because it's got, like it goes, it goes both ways. It, it's gonna go with that nice creamy goat cheese, but it's also, it's, it's, a, it's a red. So yeah. it, it's got some of those dark fruit notes that can really pair with some of the, like an aged Gouda or something like that. Yeah. And, I mean, really, 
what do you really want when you're having charcuterie? What, what you really want is something that can cut through some of that fat. Mm-hmm. And, and a little bit of brightness is, is good for that. So usually with charcuterie, you're, you know, you're seeing some of those, you know, um, the higher acidity French wines, perhaps like, like a Beaujolais or maybe an a Hermitage, yeah. um, something like that. But this, man, it's just it just feels like a great opportunity to start breaking some of the rules that are given to us traditionally. Yeah. Uh, man, it is such a, it is such a pleasure. That's one of the benefits of being here in the United States where there aren't, um, we're allowed to grow whatever grape varieties we choose. Um, it's such a, it, it's very, it's nice in France. Um, if you want to claim your AOC status, um, you have to grow. If you're in Hermitage, you're, you're growing Syrah. You can't grow Gamay. You can't grow anything else. Uh, you can, but then you'll be a Vin de France. Mm-hmm. Um, you're declassified and these declassified wines aren't sustainable. Um, yeah. From for a, most people. Yeah. For a, from a cost standpoint, you're not going to get as much money from it. And it's so interesting because I'm intensely, intensely interested in the AOC or the DOCG. Like, is there a, a generic term for that? Is AOC the, the worldwide term? Um, so each country has their own, the DOCG, um, is the highest level in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, the AOC, I believe it's now the AOP in France, is okay. theirs. Um, every country's kind of got their own. Is is did, Does the P mean protected, I'm guessing? Yep, yeah, exactly. So the C it, meant controlled, the P means protected. Um, that basic, sounds more friendly. I guess, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, to, to zoom out and explain this to people who are watching or listening at home, basically what we're referring to here are laws that only allow people within a certain geographic area to grow a certain type of wine, and what comes along with that that are stipulations like you're saying for example well you can't grow gamut if you're doing that well you're you're not part of this little thing and there's status associated with that and, and in some places it makes sense there's 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 good the good things and bad things to this debate right there's good things and bad things to protecting things right it's it's part of that like kind of security versus freedom conversation do you want to be more secure or do you want to have more freedom to experiment play around break rules and uh so in that way would you say that the united states is like one of the leaders in the natural wine world hmm great question um classically um the natural wine movement um the luar valley is kind of one of the homes Mm. um that's where pet nat first got its creation um which is the sparkling, the sparkling wine that predates Champagne by over uh, 200 years. Um, and to get into that really quickly, Pet Nat, unlike Champagne, is a singular fermentation. And unlike Franck Fizz, it's one fermentation that starts out in stainless steel and then transfers mid-fermentation into bottle where it finishes that last, that last hump of fermentation, giving you um, a light sparkle. Yeah. Interesting. I did not realize it predated champagne in that way. And it's not, I mean, to be fair, it's not the champagne method. Nope. It is. It's called Petillant Natural, Pet Nat for short. Um, these are becoming really, they're becoming very in um, right now all across the United States, um, even though they've been doing it in France for a very long time. Um, we're doing, I believe, nine different pet nets this year here at our just here winery. at the winery. We are, yeah. So that's been, and this, this uh, the Franck Fizz is kind of like, kind of straddling those two fermentation styles, right? Because you did add sugar, which Pet Nat doesn't do, Mm -hmm. but you added it in the form of just like more like grape juice. It wasn't like fresh juice. Yeah. So you're kind of, you did the, it did finish its fermentation in the bottle, but it's, it's not like a traditional champagne method. Um, wow. You, so you're doing how many Pet Nats? I believe nine different Pet Nats, all single variety. Wow. Yeah. How many, let's, let's just step back for a second. Um, pet nat is definitely one of these terms that, you know, if you're curious about the natural wine movement, you're going to want to check out. It's like yeah. one of the big terms that I wanted to make sure we talked about today. Um, uh, but you're doing nine of them here at the winery. How many bottles or labels do you put out, uh, per season or per vintage? Yeah. So, um, we did three, our first year, um, Albarino, Gruner, Veltliner, and Albarino, Gruner, Veltliner, and Syrah, uh, Syrah Rosé. The next year, I believe we did six, so we added a couple to the lineup. Um, Last year, we did a skin contact Albarino, a really fun collaboration with uh, one of our favorite bars in Baltimore, Fadensanen. Yeah, this year, we did nine last year and nine again this year. Wow, 
So that's, yeah. and so all of your all nine are, are pet nats. All nine are pet nats. Um, this was kind of a, this is not quite a pet nat. This is a sparkling wine that strays from the norm. Yeah, it's kind of funky. I like yeah. it. It's, I love I love the like I love the half wax and like half wax. To, I mean, I'm sure it's practical, but it's yes. also you know keeps that keeps that cap on. But it, it's it's, a, it's kind of a funky looking wine. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so those of you listening uh, or tuning in on YouTube, we're drinking this dope 2017 slash 2019 <laughs> Franck Fizz label 2017 because it's 90 percent from 2017. There you go. Uh, so we're, we're drinking this lovely wine. Um, we're going to be right back here at Old Westminster Winery to talk about some of the terms that you really want to keep on your radar in addition to Pet Nat if you want to learn more about natural wine. And we're back. So terms in the natural wine space are very important because I think all of these major wine trends have kind of certain terms associated with them. And, and we just kind of accept that as, you know, we, we, we learn these terms. We learn things like left bank, right bank when talking about Merlot. We learn things like, you know, the, the different, you know, fermentation methods in, in the champagne world, for example. Um, but natural wine has its own set of terms that are really important. And I think they're way, way, way less known, obviously. So I wanted to go through some of them here. And one that you just mentioned is skin contact. So as yeah. we get into a few terms, um, what the heck does skin contact mean? I mean it sounds lovely. It sounds <laughs> like, an, it sounds like you're just cuddling with someone. Yeah. It's basically the wine version of cuddling. Um, so skin contact um, is something that's prevalent in all red wines, um, or else you'd have a rosé. It is where you crush the grapes, um, and the juice and the skins have a extended period of maceration. So you get flavors, colors, tannins. More things are being extracted from the skins. Normally a white wine is pressed and the juice is extracted away from the skins. But an orange wine is a white wine that spends time with its skins, mm. gaining color. So you can have a really light, um, just a hint of orange um, in an orange wine to the really traditional stuff um, that's been made in Georgia, the country of Georgia, for thousands of years, um, where they spend almost a year in, um, they call them quevery, they're large clay pots. Um, that they've been making wine in, uh, they bury them underground, and that was old school temperature control for them. Yeah, and it does make sense, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an easy way to do it. Um, so skin, yeah. So this is this is interesting too, and this definitely is right on with our theme of not really innovating, but basically like taking things that are traditionally not done in Western winemaking, right? The Bordeaux, Burgundy, um, you know, kind of South Africa, Australia. South America style of winemaking mm -hmm. in these really established, well-worn regions. If you're making white wine, you're not putting the skins on it. Yep. And yet here we are putting the skins in. Um, so you just mentioned orange wine, uh, and we've got one of those to, to, to check out. Do you want to pour it and, and give it a little time yeah. to uh, open up in the glasses here while we finish up our Franck Fizz? Yeah, so this is called Seeds and Skins. This is a 100% Pinot Gris also known as Pinot Grigio if you're in Italia. Same grape. Oh this, yeah. This spends um, only two days on skins. Wow, um, and you can definitely still see quite an influence. Yes, so um, it's funny, so many people drink Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris, but they've never seen what it looks like. Um, I'd recommend everyone just hop on Google real quick and take a look. Pinot Grigio, if you were unfamiliar, it, it looks like a red grape. You would never know that it's genetically a white grape by looking at it. Right, right. And uh, the same goes for something like Pinot Noir, which yep. is a grape that has a red skin. But what most people know don't know is that Pinot Noir is commonly used in Champagne, which is a white wine. Yep. So, you, you know, if you've ever seen the term Blanc de Noir, that means that there's both the Chardonnay grape, the, the Blanc, the white grape. It looks, it is a white grape on the, on the vine, but the Pinot Noir is, is a red grape yeah. on the vine. So a perfect, this would be a, a perfect kind of comparison. Like if we were to have, you know, a Pinot Noir orange wine, you know, that would be an example where they left the skins in there, right? So that, that would actually just be a red wine. So skin contact for any red grapes is kind of a, 
the traditional okay. um, the traditional processing. Um, but you could do, I guess, the kind of opposite of orange wine is rosé, something that everyone's very familiar with, which is where you take the red grapes and then you treat them like a white, traditionally, like a white grape where you crush the juice immediately and separate the skins. I see. So you could get a very light rosé. Um, something like Pinot Noir is so light um, with its pigments that you could actually make a white wine out of Pinot Noir. Wow. Yeah. And again, like this is why we're sitting here talking about this because you would never think of, you would never think to do that. It's it's it it's like con like the the whole natural wine movement is like this constant series of revelations to me. And they're not they're not even like revelations in the paradigm shifting sense. It's like yeah, people have been doing this in Georgia for thousands of years. Yeah. This is not new stuff, which is why it's so exciting to me because I feel like I'm uncovering a part of my palate and a part of my like culinary experience that has just been kind of like covered up by vines and stuff. I feel like I'm yeah. uncovering like a ruin right now. It's always been there. Yeah. It's just never known about it. You just kind of have to move the vines out of the way and yeah. So what do, what do we expect here from an orange wine in this style? Yeah. So a little less, um, it'll definitely have that citrusiness that you expect from Pinot Gris. Um, but this time I feel like the stone fruit might be a little more amplified from that extended contact. Yeah, you d I definitely get some like creamy apricot on the nose. Yeah. Uh, almost verging in a tropical territory, like mm -hmm. light tropical. I could see like a candied pineapple almost. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing, you know, the weird thing about candied pineapple as a tasting note is that candied pineapple to me is less sweet than regular pineapple because it's dried. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's ta you're taking away some of the, the, the juiciness of it. Yeah. And so I could totally see that as like blurring into that stone fruit spectrum. This is a really compelling nose, and it reminds me, you know, I'll, I'll come out right, I'll come out and say it. I won't touch Pinot Grigio <laughs> on the shelf. Yeah. You know, it's, it's generally a garbage wine to me. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of that part of the world is, it's a sea of Pinot Grigio, and none of it is farmed meticulously. It is just, it's just a product that needs to hit the bottom line pricing for someone to just take home on a Wednesday that doesn't really care what they're drinking. It's cougar juice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and this, man, I, I don't even, I'm perfectly content just smelling this and I'm, I'm almost starting to get some almost meaty notes from it. Yeah. Uh, some smokiness. Yeah. Cause if you think about Pinot Noir is, this, this is a great example of, a quality in a wine that when it's made at a really low quality is a really bad thing. Yeah. But when you treat it really intentionally and when you really think about how you want to present this and do it without preservatives, you can get this really wonderful expression. So let me break that down for folks. I just said that this has sort of like a meaty note. What does that mean? There's no meat in this glass. <laughs> You know, and we were just talking about things like stone fruit and pineapple. Those aren't even remotely meaty. So what do I mean when I'm saying this? What I mean is that in the worst possible version of Pinot Grigio, when I smell it, it smells like I'm smelling bleach. It smells very basic yeah. in terms of acid base. And yet when you taste it, it tends to be a high acidity wine. Mm -hmm. Another flavor or aroma that, that can do that sometimes is uh, cardamom. If you, if you just stick your, if you stick your face in a bag full of cardamom, it can smell like ammonia, hmm. which is kind of in that bleachy, that bleachy ammonia cleaner spectrum. But this has a, a very subtle basicness to it that I think, you know, maybe, may be part of the skin contact here that it's, it's lending this note, which is typically present in really bad Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio wine, but here it just gives it that slight meaty or smoky quality that I think you get. And I think, you know, that's a way to, to walk up to a grape and say, listen, man, I know you're usually treated poorly, but we're going to treat you. We're going to treat you well and see what you can do. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's a bit of a redemption story for the Pinot Gris. Yeah. And I love it. I have not even Thank taken you. a sip. I just love smelling it because it's so compelling. It's got these weird fruity notes that you usually don't see in conjunction. And then it's got this slight kind of savory quality, a little, little bit. It reminds me of almost like pan, not, not pancetta, uh, like prosciutto. Yeah. Like a prosciutto wrapped melon, right? We're talking about this. I was about just about to say, I'm getting a nice uh, meloniness, um, yeah. like creamy, almost papaya. 
yeah. the creamy papaya. Yeah, absolutely. And we're in Maryland right now, pawpaw. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Got the, the, the gents over at Baltimore Spirits Company <laughs> making their Pechuga-style smoked yeah. apple brandy using pawpaws. And you're right. Local mezcal. Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't is that protected? That. Can you call it that? No, they can't call it that for <laughs> sure. But, uh, but yeah, man, is it special. Uh, all right, I'm going to taste it now. I got it. Yeah, it's great. The texture on this, man. Wow. And you can't see, like, you can't see any carbonation. Mm-mm. But you can taste it. You can taste Just a little a bit. Yeah. Just a touch. And it, wow. Yeah, and it, it's funny too. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever seen those, like, those scalp stimulators. It's like a little thing, it looks, and it goes, like, basically oh, like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that happens to my tongue <laughs> when I taste this wine. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a very gentle stimulation. It doesn't feel like I'm taking, like, a big swig of, like, super bubbly water. Mm-mm. Like a Topo Chico, you, you yeah. ever have that, where it's, like, well, it feels like my ma- your mouth is, like, <laughs> you've got, like, Pop Rocks in there. You should try the Singa water. Have you had theirs? No. Oh, man, that's, like, twice as carbonated as Topo. It's crazy, right? So it, <laughs> it's, it's nothing like that. It's, like, as far from that as you can yeah. possibly get, but I feel still, like, it's almost like you, you're, it, it's exciting and stimulating the palate, but almost sub like like below your consciousness. Yeah, it's like a waltz of bubbles on your tongue. Wow, this is so cool. And uh, so for folks watching and listening, I deliberately came in here without doing any research on this, which is usually not what I like to do. I usually like to be able to steer the conversation very carefully, but I knew that this was such a an unknown continent to me that I wanted to have some of the surprise here be legitimate so that you can like follow along with me and see what is actually exciting about this. And to me, something like this, where it's a, a varietal that I've traditionally hated that I can just walk up to and be like, this is the probably the coolest thing I've had all month. <laughs> Uh, in terms of like any sort of spirit cocktail, wine, beer, like this is. Thank you. I'm I mean, you're enjoying it. The the Franck Fizz is delightful, and I would if there was a charcuterie board, we would just be digging in right now. But this, this is almost like an like an intellectual experience for me, especially yeah. because this is my first orange wine. Really? Yes. You've never had orange wine before. Yes, I've never wow. had it. <laughs> you, it's 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 incredible. Um, well, this is a really nice, gentle opening to orange wine. Um, a lot of it can be quite tannic um, from extended macerations. Mm-hmm. Um, like I mentioned, this is only two days on its skins. Right. Um, sometimes they can see, um, we make one that um, we just bottled called Terracotta. It's our very first amphora-aged wine. And an amphora um, is, um, like the quevery I mentioned earlier, a large clay pot. Yes. So we did a 62-day skin maceration Pinot Gris in 2018 and we just sent it to bottle um 10 days ago i'll Very definitely nice. make sure to find some for you to try yeah that's that sounds really exciting uh, so this is this is a really good segue because i really wanted to talk about some of the some of the implications of skin contact uh in these orange wines uh and it seems to me that yeah like you said like that the tannins could get really aggressive like with those georgian wines like like a year yeah like a year and they're really highly tannic varieties like they're almost more tannic than a lot of reds that you try yeah um, but they also carry with them the georgian ones um a lot of salinity like so much umami um they're begging for food yeah yeah and this you know i when when we talk about wines you're kind of always in the universe of food yeah. Like, yes, you can absolutely have wine in a vacuum. We're, we're doing it right now. We're, we're, taste, <laughs> we're tasting wine without food. But it just seems in, in a way that likes a spirit. When I talk about a bourbon, all right, maybe I'm thinking about some flavor notes that are related to food. But usually I'm not thinking about like, all right, well, what, what kind of meal am I going to pair this bourbon <laughs> with? Um, and so we, we talked about some opportunities um, with this, the Franck Fizz. What, what might one pair with an or- like a, a light, we'll call this like a light example of an orange yeah. wine? Um, to me, I get a lot of like forest floor notes in this wine, and I instantly think of like a nice sautéed chanterelle, like polenta, um, would be really lovely with this. Maybe a, um, a roast chicken to pair with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely a chickeny wine because yeah. it's got some of those like yeah, like you're right. Like I, I could like see a rosemary or a sage mm-hmm. like kind of influence here. It's like it's it feels very harvesty. 
Yes. Right. This, this feels like a fall wine. Right. And uh, you know, when, when I'm, whenever I'm trying to set up a food and wine pairing or a, a food and cocktail pairing or whatever it is, like, you know, the, the first, the first thing that you want to ask is like, all right, what season are we in? What are we celebrating with this? And how can the wine and the food celebrate one another? Yeah. Right. That's um, what it's all about historically. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. Beautiful natural wine, courtesy of Joey Fox and Old Westminster Winery, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.